0: Hello again, everybody, and welcome to the thrilling adventures of NFL Super Pro. He went from sacking quarterbacks to tackling crime, and this is the web's first and only podcast dedicated to his amazing exploits. Faster than a running back, more powerful than a linebacker, able to lead defensive linemen at a single bound, he is NFL Super Pro. Okay, I'm just kidding you folks. This is, as always, the thrilling adventures of Superman. Hello again, folks. I am, as always, your host, Michael Bradley, and we're here to talk about not Super Pro, but Superman, specifically his Golden Age adventures. For those of you who heard earlier episodes of the show, I want to give you a warm welcome back. For those of you who are hearing this show for the first time, first of all, welcome. Uh, The mission of this show is to explore through the Golden Age of Superman in comics and radio and film. The plan is to go through all of Superman's stories uh, in various media in order to kind of take a look at the character's formative years and hopefully keep you entertained along the way. The Golden Age Superman is a little bit different than the Superman we see today, but in a lot of ways he's quite a bit the same. But despite the differences, he's still much more entertaining than NFL Super Pro. But you know, that NFL Super Pro podcast could be fairly entertaining in and of itself. Maybe I should start that up... hmm... Anyway, like I said, this is a Superman show, so that's gonna have to wait for another time since we need to get to the topic of this episode, namely the Superman story from Action Comics number 4. Thankfully, for those of you who still want a pigskin fix, this does see Superman going from superhero to football hero, and the results are, well, bizarre is one word that could be used. By the time you hear this, the NFL playoffs will be over, and the Super Bowl will be about a week and a half away, so hopefully this bit of football craziness will get you by until then. This issue's cover, like the last few, doesn't feature Superman. It's again by Leo O'Melia, and it shows a Canadian Mountie encountering a, well, what kind of looks to be like a wolfman-type creature, or maybe just a guy with thick hair and a beard. It's... Rather, rather difficult to tell, because it's kind of a weird cover. Uh, it's night, and there's a light source coming from just off panel at the character's feet, and I'm not really sure what that light source is supposed to be. Uh, did the Mountie drop a flashlight, or is there a campfire? It's a nicely colored cover, but the art, to me anyway, leaves a lot of questions about just what's going on. And also, for a title called Action Comics, there's just not a lot of action here on the cover because the Mountie is just standing there preparing to draw a sidearm, and the other figure is pretty static as well. The book was released uh, sometime around August 2nd, 1938, and has a September cover date and the standard price of 10 cents. The Superman story inside was by Jerry Siegel and Joe Shuster, Jerry again signing as Jerome Siegel, and Vince Sullivan is given credit as editor. This story has been titled Superman, Gridiron Hero, and Superman Plays Football. And I've noticed on these stories that were originally untitled that when they've been given titles in reprints, there's usually a couple different titles floating around. One that's kind of dynamic, you know, Superman, Gridiron Hero, and the other that's kind of bland, like Superman Plays Football. And I know the names come from different reprints, but what's odd is, from what I can tell, the blander name is from a more recent reprint, and it's kind of odd why why they would go back and rename it with a less interesting name for a... Newer reprint, you know? I know why they give the stories names. for. It's just for reader convenience to be able to identify the stories. But I don't know who's in charge of labeling those, whether it's the editor of the collected edition or someone else in the company. This particular story might be better off titled, Superman Does Something Really Insane That Would Probably Get Him Arrested But No One Seems to Really Care for Some Crazy Reason. Oh, and he plays football for a minute too? But, Yeah. Superman Gridiron Hero, and Superman Plays Football. That's your titles. The story begins with a drunken driver racing recklessly through the streets. Suddenly, an ear-piercing scream and a deadly thud pierce the air. The driver has stuck a a pedestrian. Struck a pedestrian. (sighs) Let's let's start this over, alright folks? The story begins with a drunken driver racing recklessly through the streets. Suddenly, an ear-piercing scream and a deadly thud pierce the air. The driver has struck a pedestrian. Scared, the driver races off at an even greater speed as a crowd gathers around the victim. High above, having witnessed the incident, Superman springs into action. Superman takes a mighty leap and lands just narrowly missing a train racing down the tracks. Just ahead, the drunk driver's car has conveniently stalled on those same railroad tracks. Back inside the train, one of the engineers sneaks a sip of the hooch then glances out the train, only to go crazy when he sees Superman not only running alongside the train, but passing it. The startled engineer tells the other engineer what he saw. A man racing us, running faster than the train. I saw it with my own eyes. To which the other engineer replies, Drinking again, eh? And that bit might have actually been funny if, you know, he hadn't actually been drinking. But if you haven't gotten the message yet, drinking and driving, trains or cars, is bad, folks. So, back outside, Superman has reached the stalled auto and grabs the driver. The man struggles to free himself from Superman, and Superman seems pretty afraid of getting hit and killed himself by the train, which is odd given that in the three issues prior we've seen Superman easily shrug off gunfire twice, survive poison gas, and falls that would kill ordinary men. But thankfully, Superman is able to latch onto the man and leap free of the car mere moments before it is crushed by the oncoming train. Superman and the man land near the side of the tracks, but Superman discovers that in all the excitement, the man has unfortunately died of a heart attack. Got all that? Great, because it has absolutely nothing to do with the rest of the story. Much like the torturer scene from episode 2, it's just one of those out of the blue tangents that really has nothing to do with the story at hand. Well, I guess this one does tie in a bit more, but only in the barest of ways because what we see next is Superman grabbing the edge of one of the windows on the train and swinging into one of the Pullman cars. Why does he do this? I have absolutely no idea. One minute he's holding the dead body of a drunk driver in his arms, and the next minute he's leaping into a train, apparently leaving the dead person on the side of the tracks. It's just very, very bizarre and... Really, now that I think about it, it's pretty bothersome that Superman would watch someone die and then just leave him there. I mean, the train stops when it hit the car, so someone will find him, but it's just... I don't... Like I said, it's just very, very bizarre. But believe it or not, that's not the weirdest thing Superman does in this issue. So, like I said, Superman swings into one of the private rooms on the train. Just as he does so, someone starts to enter the room, so Superman quickly hides behind a chair. He overhears three men talking, one of whom is Coach Randall of the Dale University football team. Randall tells the other two men that to keep from being fired, he wants to to win the upcoming game against Cordell University at any cost. He wants the other two men to join the Dale U squad and take out Cordell's three best players, Stevens, Burns, and Lewiston, at the beginning of the game. Superman decides he can't stand for such tomfoolery, and the next day looks through the newspaper's morgue at clippings about Cordell's football team. He finds a photo of Tommy Burke, one of the players on Cordell's squad, that has a similar build to himself. He takes the photo home, and, applying some grease paint, changes his appearance so that he looks exactly like Burke. Seriously. (sighs) On the other hand, he usually fools people with a pair of glasses, so... I guess Grease Pain is actually a step up? Later that evening, we are introduced to Tommy Burke, who is visiting with his girlfriend Mary for a date. But Mary channels her inner Lois Lane and tells Burke off, telling him she'll never go out with him again, and then she proceeds to go on for three panels, which was a lot of space in these non-decompressed stories, about what a loser he is and how she's ashamed of him because after being on the football team for seven years... Seven years of college? Seven years, he's never even played in one game. He's not a football hero, he's a football zero, and she's already found the new boyfriend, tennis champion Wallace Dodd, a real athlete. Now that's cold. And it's hard to believe she could be so brazen because she's so cute. Well, cute for a drawing, I guess. She's got the trendy 30s hair that most of Schuster's women did, and the big doe eyes, but the way she goes off on Burke is like, yikes you think he forgot her birthday and anniversary and gave away her dog, all in one setting, the way she's acting. So, poor Burke, he, he storms off fuming, swearing he'll get even with the she of the cold, cold heart by becoming rich and famous, then ignoring her. Okay, I guess that could work. Burke is surprised by a voice from behind, and turning around, he sees a man that looks exactly like himself all the way down to wearing the exact same suit. Where did Superman get that suit? I mean, it's the exact same suit. Brown pants, black and white checkered coat, black vest, and green shirt. Did he watch Burke get dressed and then run off, by the exact same clothes, and then catch up with Burke? Or was it just a coincidence? Or who knows? Startled, Burke says, Good, good Lord, you're me! and Superman replies, You're mistaken. You're not looking at Tommy Burke's substitute, but Tommy Burke, the greatest football hero of all time. Burke lunges to the attack, but Superman stabs him with a syringe, rendering him unconscious. Later, Burke wakes up in his own apartment, with blonde hair for one panel, and Superman tells him that the drug he was injected with has temporarily rendered him partially paralyzed. He tells him, quote, I'm going to take your place in life for a few days, so long, and then leaves. No explanation, no, hey, sorry, pal, or this is for a good cause, nothing. Just, hey, you're paralyzed, I'm taking your place for a few days, see ya. So, let's review. In the span of about four pages, we've seen Superman leave a dead body by the roadside, hop a ride on a train, disguise himself as a complete stranger, then drug that stranger into unconsciousness against his will and take his place. And this is our hero. (sighs) So Superman, still disguised as Burke, and he stays disguised as him for a few pages here, so just assume he is until I mention different. Anyway, Superman goes to the locker room at Cordell, and after some ribbing from the other players on the team, starts to suit up. He isn't sure which locker is Burke, so he just picks a random locker and starts to pull out the uniform and begins suiting up. Unfortunately, this riles the team roughneck, Ray Martin, the guy who actually uses that locker. Martin takes a swing at Superman's jaw, another to his gut, and several more blows that, much to the surprise of their teammates, leave Superman unfazed. Finally, Superman has had enough of the shenanigans and gives Martin a light tap, sending him flying across the locker room into the wall, knocking him out cold. At the commotion, the team's coach, Oliver Stanley... Oliver Stanley? Maybe named after a certain comedy duo that was famous around this time, I wonder? This story does seem to be another nice mess. (laughs) In any event, Coach Stanley bursts into the locker room, finds Martin unconscious, and demands to know what happened. Superman confesses that he was responsible, and the coach tells him to take off his uniform and clear out. As the team charges onto the field, one of the players and the coach talk about how Burke, i.e. Superman, isn't acting like himself, and they don't know quite what's come over him. Meanwhile, Superman sits in the locker room sulking about what a mess he's made of things so far. He decides that regardless of what the coach has said, he's going onto the field anyway. Superman charges out of the locker room and onto the field, immediately snagging a pass that had been thrown downfield. The coach screams at him and tells the other players to grab him and, quote, give him the bum's rush, throw him out on his ear. Superman tucks the ball under his arm and heads downfield towards the goal as the team takes aim. First on the attack is Ray Martin, who apparently recovered rather quickly from being knocked unconscious. Martin attempts to tackle as a little payback for Superman snooping in his locker, but Superman easily gets by him. Three more players attempt to block Superman's progress. The coach says it was only an accident that he got by Martin, and that he'd have to be an acrobat to get past the other players. And clearly, this, had this been an episode of Smallville, circa seasons 1-3, through three, that line would have been replaced with Lana on the sidelines, saying something to the effect of, he'd have to be a Superman to get past them. But, much to the disbelief of the coaches, Superman springs onto the shoulders of the first man and leaps over the remaining two, leaving them all in the dust. Finally, the entire rest of the team attempts to dogpile him, but Superman continues unabated, even dragging at least four members of the team downfield with him as they attempt to stop his progress. Finally, a few yards short of the goal, Superman shakes off the remaining defenders and crosses the goal line. Touchdown! The feat leaves the coach and the entire team stunned. They wonder exactly what's come over Burke, who is really Superman. Six seasons, and again, six seasons? This is college. Why is he playing for six seasons? Anyway, six seasons, he's been riding the bench, but now he can play against Dale. The team's head coach calls the sports editor of the newspaper and tells them what a sensation Burke really is. The editor thinks it's a gag, but runs the story anyway. Cut to Burke's apartment, where Burke sits on the edge of the bed, enjoying a nice cup of coffee, and Superman, now just dressed in a suit, reads the paper and laughs at the article. I have no idea what this panel is about. Superman and Burke seem to be just hanging out like old pals. I mean, Burke is sitting up on the edge of the bed without a shirt on, enjoying a nice cup of coffee. Why isn't he leaving? Or calling the police or something? Has Superman explained to him what's going on? Or is Burke... Just content to hang out for a few days while someone who looks like him takes his place? It's just very peculiar. And not to spoil it for you, but it gets even more so. Uh, So, uh, meanwhile, at Dale University, the Cordell coach reads the article. He tells his cronies the article has Burke played as a fool, but thinks it would be a good idea if he disappeared until after the game anyway. And nothing more is said about the original plan, which was to do away with Cordell's three best players, Superman makes a show as Burke, and suddenly he's the focus. I mean, wouldn't taking him out leave Dale in the exact same spot they were before he made the scene? Coach Nasty McVillain obviously isn't thinking too clearly here. So, over the following days, Superman continues to practice with the Cordell team, and the coaching squad is still amazed by how Burke became such an outstanding player overnight. Finally, on the day before the big game, Cordell's coach Stanley gives the team a rousing pep talk of, Tomorrow's the game with Dale. Now remember, early to bed, no smoking, no drinking, pleasant dreams, and sends the team home. That evening, the two thugs hired by Dale's coach Randall pay a visit to Burke's apartment. Later, after Burke is asleep, they break in and tie him up, commenting on how strange it was that he didn't struggle at all. But, as the narration tells us, the thugs are unaware that Burke is under the influence of a sleep-inducing drug, or that Superman is ob- is observing them from the molding overhead. And it shows Superman, now back in costume, holding on to the decorative molding at the top of the wall and sort of bracing himself. Now, I lived in an apartment for eight years, and I've been inside many apartments, and none of them had ceilings high enough that you wouldn't notice a full-grown man hanging from the ceiling, especially one dressed in a bright blue and red costume. Those would have to be some amazingly high ceilings for that to be even just a little bit plausible. But the craziest thing about this scene is that Burke has been drugged again, seemingly by Superman. So, Superman drugs Burke once to kidnap him, him, holds him captive in an apartment for several days, and even though he was alert and conscious and seemingly on friendly terms, drugs him again for no reason in particular, just as the two thugs are coming to kidnap him. Very convenient. And Burke is completely innocent in all this. He's just the unlucky sap who happened to look enough like Superman that Superman could get away with passing himself off as him. It's just crazy. So, the thugs kidnap Burke, and Superman follows them by running behind the car on foot. They bring Burke to an abandoned house, and when Burke finally comes to, they tell him that he's been kidnapped so he won't be able to play in the game the next day. And Burke's like, but I'm just a substitute. And he tries to explain that it wasn't him doing all the amazing football playing and that someone else has taken his place but the thugs tell him to shut up and they tie a gag around his mouth. And Superman has been watching all this from the window and smiles because they've taken Burke off his hands. And since they obviously mean him no physical harm it's apparently okay that this guy is being held against his will. So in another insane plot point Superman just leaves him there tied up in an abandoned building. I mean, (laughs) it's just insane. One note about this panel, though. Superman's shield has spontaneously changed shape. It's no longer the straight triangle, the simple triangle, but now it's closer to an elongated pentagon shape. The top is straight across, and then the sides dip down a bit, and then there are uh, two much longer sides coming down to a point. And also here, the S is the the S in the center of the shield is red, which marks the first place we've seen that in a story. It's also a bit odd that the shield changes shape here because earlier in the story, uh, you know, Superman spent most of the story out of costume. But earlier, when we saw him in costume, his shield was just a solid yellow triangle, as it has been the last, you know, three or four issues. So it's kind of weird that it would just spontaneously change shape. So the next morning, the crowd gathers at the stadium for the game. Dale Coach Randall goes to visit with Cordell Coach Stanley and is stunned to see Burke, really Superman, in his office. Superman confronts Randall alone and tells him he knows he hired the thugs to play on Dale's team, and if he doesn't fire them and resign as coach, he'll expose him after the game. After the game? Why not just do it now, Superman? Do it now and save everyone a lot of trouble, maybe? Then maybe go rescue the guy that you left tied up without food or water for a whole day? (sighs) Randall plays dumb and says he doesn't know what Superman is talking about, then heads back to the locker room and lambasts the thugs for letting Burke escape. He tells the thugs that Superman plans to expose them at the end of the game, but the thugs pull out a knife and say that they'll take care of him. Meanwhile, back at the deserted house, Burke has broken free and hails a cab to get a ride to the game. Somewhere, Burke has latched onto a full outfit as well. When we saw him earlier, he was just wearing pants and a tank top undershirt. But now he's wearing different pants, a collared shirt, and a sweater. Maybe the kidnappers were kind enough to bring along spare clothes? And money for the cab? It's very thoughtful of them, for kidnappers. Jumping back to the stadium, as the game begins, Superman receives the opening kickoff and runs down the field, plowing through the defensive line, and scoring a touchdown, much to the delight of the crowd. Superman grabs the next kickoff, and again scores an easy touchdown. The crowd and a very excitable announcer go wild at the amazing feat, but Superman's teammates are rather annoyed that they're not getting to play. You'd think these guys would be a little happier, given that their team is now two touchdowns ahead and the game just started, but... who knows. Ray Martin, still recovering nicely from his being knocked unconscious grabs the next kickoff, and Superman runs interference and again plows through the defensive line, clearing the way for Martin to score an easy third touchdown. A member of Dale's team throws his helmet down in disgust, saying that even a two-year-old could have scored that goal with Superman blocking. Meanwhile, the real Burke arrives at the stadium, but is denied admittance at the player's entrance. So he apparently buys a ticket and goes in through the stands, and is surprised to see Superman scoring goal after goal. Finally getting upset that Superman has taken over his life, Burke threatens to call the cops. You'd think he would have done that, you know, three or four days ago when he was first held hostage or even stopped on the cab ride over. But, hey, to each his own. Suddenly, Burke hears a familiar voice, that of his ex-girlfriend Mary, the one who so coldly dumped him at the beginning of the story. Apparently, Mary and her new boyfriend, the tennis player, are sitting, again, conveniently, just a few rows ahead of Burke. Why is she at the game? She made it pretty clear that she had absolutely no interest in Burke or his lack of skills. Ladies, and I assume there are ladies listening, is this common practice? Dump a guy for his lack of success and show up at his games with your new boyfriend to rub his nose in it? (sighs) Not cool, Mary. Not cool. Anyway... Mary and her new guy, Wallace, are sitting just a few rows ahead, and Wallace is complaining that Mary isn't paying enough attention to him. Once again, Mary channels her inner Lois Lane, deservedly so, at least this time, and she tells Wallace that even though he's a tennis champion, he's a big sissy compared to her Tommy. And this is the same Tommy, remember, who she said she was ashamed of before and dumped him because he wasn't playing. What is with this woman? Methinks she's just a little bit crazy. Anyway, hearing this, as if the cheering crowds weren't enough, Burke realizes he's now idolized by the crowd and begins cheering for himself. Or Superman as himself, anyway. Back out on the field, Superman fends off an attack from the two thugs. The knife shatters off Superman's invulnerable skin, and Superman returns the favor and roughs up the attacker so badly that in the next panel, we see the two thugs being carried off the field on stretchers. Dale's coach Randall hands his letter of resignation to the water boy, apparently, and tells him to take it to the university's president. At halftime, Superman meets Burke outside of the locker room. How did they arrange this meeting, anyway? It said, The narration says Superman meets Burke outside the locker room. Maybe Burke was going for popcorn or something. I don't know. But Superman tells Burke that they need to exchange clothes. Burke catches on so in the second half Burke takes the field again and after missing a pass and fumbling around for the ball he then gets tackled by every player on the field including his own teammates apparently and is knocked unconscious. Later when he wakes up Mary tells him how wonderful he is and tells him he must promise to give up football because it's too violent because apparently dating a guy who's A good football player but doesn't play is way better than dating a guy who's not a good player and doesn't play. Or something. Burke tells her that she doesn't know what she's asking, but that he'll do it for her anyway. And that's the end of the story. Rather abrupt, if you ask me. (laughs) Everything from after when Burke starts to cheer for himself takes place on one page. Six panels. We had a lot of build-up to the thugs that were going to take out Superman, and then they're mostly taken out off-panel. Even the coach's fate. He resigns, but there's no real comeuppance at all. Uh, no chewing out from the president, no final confrontation with Superman, nothing. He just hands a note to the water boy, and that's the last we see of him. And that ending, just... ah. Uh. Burke's girlfriend dumps him because she says he's a loser, then dumps her next boyfriend for also being a loser, then goes back to Burke after seeing him play well for one half of a football game, then getting knocked out. This woman's a little crazy, I think. Though, really, Burke's not much better for going back to her after the way she told him off at the beginning of the issue. Maybe getting drugged repeatedly by Superman affected his brain? And just what's with that? Shouldn't Burke be just a tiny bit upset that Superman drugged him, not once, but twice, and held him hostage? I mean, sheesh. (sighs) This story, like the last one, I think, it it again suffers from a lack of Superman-in-costume action. We get more than last issue, but most of it is just in that opening sequence, which ends up having absolutely nothing to do with the main story. Even Clark Kent is barely seen in this issue. You know, just the one panel where he goes to the newspaper morgue. I I don't know. I, I really feel like I'm dumping a lot on these stories. A big part of this show is to celebrate the older stories, but I still want to look at them with a critical eye. And maybe I am being overly critical of them, but I think a lot of that is the perspective and history from, you know, from which we're looking at them. It's easy to look back now, more than 70 years later, and laugh and sigh and wonder how these stories ever made an impact. But it's also easy to overlook that, at the time, these were pretty phenomenal. I mean, there was just nothing else like them being published. As we've seen going through the other books, the stories in the other comics at the time were primarily all detectives or adventurers or humor strips. Not these wild flights of fancy about a guy that can throw around a car, or can shrug off machine gun fire, or, you know, shatter a knife against his skin. But, they're just big, goofy fun anyway, and really, that's what comic books should be, I think. And like I said, you know, in the second episode, these stories do get better. In fact, there's some coming up very soon that I think really are deserving of the name, The Thrilling Adventures of Superman. At the end of the story, we've got a cute one-panel strip entitled Acquiring Super Strength. I talked about these a couple episodes ago. Uh, Jerry Siegel and Joe Shuster did a few of these that ran at the end of the early stories. This one shows readers how to build their muscles. It says, You may find lifting a heavy armchair a difficult task. And it shows a boy trying to lift a huge uh, padded armchair. However, if you lift smaller weights regularly and gradually increase the weight of those objects, you'll soon find lifting a mere armchair a cinch. And it shows three more pictures of the same boy lifting a box, and then a small wooden chair, and eventually the big padded armchair, which is about twice the size that he is. So remember, folks, if you want super strength like Superman, don't go around drugging complete strangers or hopping rides on trains. All you need to do is lift boxes, then work your way up to chairs. It's just that easy. It's in a comic, so it's got to be true, right? (sighs) Oh, well. (laughs) One final thing I'll mention uh, for a bit of historical note. As I mentioned earlier, there's one panel where Superman's shield changes. Also on his costume, while it wasn't clear in issue two... The laced-up boots are definitely gone in this issue, in favor of the simpler style that Superman will sport from here on out. I also think, and I'm not going to say this for absolute sure because they might pop up again in some random issue, but I think this is the last time his boots are colored blue. And again, I could be wrong, but I'm pretty sure on that. Also, despite what the entry at the Grand Comic Book Database says, the story does not say that Clark works for the evening news in this issue. In the story, the Cordell coach calls a paper identified as the news, but it doesn't indicate that this is the same paper Clark works for, or actually what paper he works for at all. He is just identified as a newspaper reporter when he goes to check the morgue files for uh, Cordell players to impersonate. Like the last few, this story has been reprinted in Superman Chronicles Volume 1, Superman Archives Volume 1, Famous 1st Edition C61, and the Superman number 1 Millennium Edition, and pretty much anywhere else that you find Superman number 1 reprinted. From here on out, we're going to start seeing a lot more variation in where these stories have been reprinted. The Archives and Chronicles series will still be present for quite a while, but aside from those, we're going to encounter a lot of stories that haven't seen the light of day since their original publication. Other features in this issue are the usual suspects, uh, that being Chuck Dawson, Pet Morgan, Marco Polo, Tex Thompson, Scoop Scanlan, and Zaytara. Zaytara's story in this issue is only six pages, rather than the normal twelve, but there is also another Inspector Donald and Bobby feature by Leo O'Melia. If you recall, that feature also appeared in issue number two. And this will be the last time we see that feature, which makes it the first recurring strip from the book to either get dropped or simply not show up again. One further item about these features that I've failed to mention in earlier episodes is that the Chuck Dawson and Scoop Scanlon features are in black and white. I was looking at some of the Scoop Scanlon stories uh, before recording this, and I think it really works to the advantage of that strip because... Will Eli, who wrote and drew the strip, made good use of the blacks and shadows to give, it a, to give the art a real texture and atmosphere. Other books from Detective, with the September 1938 cover date, there's not really too much noteworthy, but there were the so far standard releases, which were Detective Comics number 19, with an 8-page spy story and a 12-page slam Bradley story, as well as More Fun Comics number 35, which had a 6-page radio squad story. And New Adventure Number Thirty, excuse me, New Adventure Comics number thirty, with a four-page Federal Men story all by Siegel and Schuster. Coming October thirty first, twenty ten, Superman Forever Radio, a new weekly podcast which will focus on Superman and his family of comics, movies, television shows, cartoons, radio shows, and more. Featuring the latest news, reviews, and the latest and classic adventures of the Manusville, an in-depth look at a variety of topics throughout Superman's 70-plus years of history. Join host J. David Weeder every Sunday for Superman Forever Radio, coming October thirty-first, 2010. For more information, go to supermanforever.com. Well, ladies, gentlemen, I think that about does it for another episode. Thank you again very much for listening. I love hearing feedback from listeners, so as always, feel free to drop me an email at thrillingadventures at greatcrypton.com. Comments, questions, corrections, etc., please send me an email. Tell me what you like about the show and what you don't like, or what you'd like to hear on the show if you have any suggestions for improving it. Let me know your thoughts on the issue or Superman or the best ways to drug someone and take over their life. Actually, never mind that last one. I don't want to know. Plausible deniability, folks. Plausible deniability. But still, feedback. Email. ThrillingAdventures at com. Do it. Also, be sure to head on over to GreatCrypton.com for images and show notes, etc. The RSS feed is there, too, if you want to subscribe. You can also subscribe via iTunes if you'd like, and there's a link for that on the site as well, or you can just search for Thrilling Adventures of Superman. If you subscribe via iTunes, feel free to leave an iTunes review. It, it helps others find the show and let them know that it's worth listening to. Be sure to visit the Superman Podcast Network, available at com slash Network. There you will find all sorts of Superman-related podcasts and vodcasts that cover the pretty much the entire gamut of Superman history, and there's quite a few that are excellent to listen to, so be sure to check those out. As always, Superman was created by Jerry Siegel and Joe Shuster and is copyright DC Comics. So thanks once more for listening to The Thrilling Adventures of Superman, and I will talk to you later. Goodbye. Friends don't stop friends from drinking and driving. Friends die from drinking and driving. Friends die from drinking and... drinking and Drinking and driving can kill a friendship.